fourth chapter of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4. As you're turning that way, I just want to bring you up to speed a little bit with what's going on here amongst the early church. Peter has preached on the day of Pentecost. We've seen the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon uh, the Lord's uh, disciples, upon the apostles and uh, those that were with them. We saw 3,000 souls saved. We see the early church beginning to meet and how they're adhering to the disciples' doctrines. And we see how fear, in verse 43 of chapter 2, how fear came upon every soul that was there and how the apostles were working many wonders and signs that, that were being accomplished by the hands of the apostles. We go on and we read in chapter 3 about how one who was, was lame had been healed and we see as a result of that that people begin to be very worried about what they're seeing of the apostles. And ultimately here in the, the beginning part of chapter 4, we see that Peter and John are thrown in prison. So they're thrown in prison, it's evenings falling, so they're kind of put into a holding cell, and the next day they kind of have their, their first trial. They're, they're brought for the first time between, before the rulers. Read with me, beginning in Acts chapter 4, verse 5. It says, And it came to pass on the morrow, on the next day, that their rulers and elders and scribes, and Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, set John and Peter in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? They've seen this lame man who's been healed. They know that there's no working of that that just happens. It's not something that the scribes or the Pharisees amongst them could do. None of the elders, none of the rulers could do that. And so they're asking and they're questioning John, they're questioning Peter and saying, how did you do this? Under what name have you done this? By what power have you healed this man that couldn't walk? And in verse 8, Peter says, says, then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. Peter is saying that if we were to examine the things that have been accomplished, and we are to look at how this impotent man, how this good deed has been done to this impotent man. I preached a sermon not too long ago from this very verse. Preached that, that, that title, the good deed done to the impotent man. Peter is saying if we were to, to look at that, and we were to set it before us and examine it, we would see that it was accomplished by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. This is not people that would have uh, someone being from Nazareth is not someone who would be a great recognition. But he says, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by Him does this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of, of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. He's taking prophecy and applying it now to in whose name they are doing these things. Peter's filled with the Holy Ghost. And he is boldly declaring these things have been done in the name of Jesus. Now let me say something about that. Sometimes we think that someone who's filled with the Holy Spirit, that it has to be this, this great demonstration of the Holy Spirit. And it's somebody who is loud and, and filled up and they're charged and they're running the pews or doing something like that. Listen, Peter here is before the magistrates and the rulers. 
He is a prisoner. He is not somebody who is going to be able to, to go and, and do, make a big demonstration. But what he is doing by the power of the Holy Ghost is declaring clearly under what name they are doing these things. And he says, is that Jesus, the one from Nazareth, whom you have crucified? The one whom those that were the chief builders had rejected. He is now the chief corner. And it is by His name. Oh, high priest. It is by His name that we do these things. He goes on and says, Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, so all these rulers, they see the boldness of Peter and John and how they were filled with the Holy Ghost and what they were saying, and they perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men. They marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Now I want to tell you a couple of things here about what we're seeing, uh, of what Peter and John are declaring as we see the, the rulers making a, having awareness of who they are. They said, this is Peter. He's that one who has been out fishing. This is John. He's that one who's, who we see as the son of Zebedee who's been with him. And we know that they have been with Jesus. It says, and beholding the man which was healed, standing with them, they could say nothing against it. What was there to say? How could these rulers deal with what they had done? They couldn't say they didn't really do this. This man was standing before them. Yesterday, he could not stand. And today, he was standing before them. They had no argument against what Peter was declaring. It says, but when they commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves. The rulers now have dismissed John and Peter, and they're talking to one another, saying, what shall we do to these men? These men, for that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they should speak henceforth to no man in this name. They see what has happened, and they know it is a great miracle, and it's one that they cannot deny. Listen to me, when something happens in someone's life where they are transformed, where when God comes and works in the life of a sinner, when He comes and works in the life of an unbeliever, and they're come to be transformed by the saving power of God, they cannot deny it. And listen to me, when that testimony is spread abroad, and they say, you know that drunk that used to be on the bar stool every night? Did you know he's at home now, and he's loving his wife, and he's shepherding his children? He's not who he used to be. And those other drunks at the bar, they're led to say, I cannot deny it. Something has happened in this man's life. He's not who he used to be. We sang a song earlier today. I said, I cannot deny him. I will always walk beside him. Every now and then you'll see somebody have a little baby and it'll look just like them. We see Braley. Brett can't deny Braley. No birth certificate is necessary. It's obvious who her father is. It can't be denied. So it is in the life of a believer. 
that when somebody is transformed from darkness into life, their life should match the change that they're testifying, the change that they're professing. Listen to me, if your life is not matching the change that you're professing, you need to make your calling election sure. What does the Scripture say about how, we'll, how we will be able to tell that somebody else is saved? How we will be able to tell that somebody else is indeed following after the Lord? It says that we will know them by what? By their fruits. There'll be an evidence that comes with the change. That you can't deny it. That this one has been with Jesus. That this one has truly been healed. That this one is not who she used to be. She's been made new in Christ Jesus. It cannot be denied. And so these, the, the rulers are, are fearful that this is going to spread because again, they can't deny it. And so they're going to threaten Peter and John and they do in verse 18. It says, And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. Listen to what Peter and John said back to them. It says, But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, you, you be the judge. It says, For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. For all men glorified God for that which was done. For the man was above 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing was shown. This man had been lame for 40 plus years. And now he's healed. The people were blessing and praising God. And, and we see the rulers could have no charge against Peter and John. And Peter and John, all they simply said, they said, listen, you can be the judge of whether or not it's right for us that we should continue to preach in Jesus' name. They said, but what we're going to do is we're going to continue to tell others the things which we have seen and heard. The things which we have seen and heard. Paul had a similar testimony, didn't he? He said, woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. He said, I must tell others of those things which I have seen and I have heard. There seems to be something that comes with salvation. Well, it comes with salvation at least early on before that would go and get dulled by, by all the trappings of life and all the things that would blur and obscure our testimonies. That what happens in the life of a man or woman or a, a child when they come to be saved is that they want to tell others about it. They want to tell others about what they've seen and what they've heard. They said, listen, you've got to come hear this preacher. You've got to come hear what this man told me about Jesus. He told me that I could call out to him that if I believe upon his name and let go of this world and repent of my sins, that I'd find joy and I'd find peace. And you know what? I did. Come and hear him. You've got to come see this Jesus. Because all I can do is tell you that I was blind and now I see. I was once dark in darkness and in my sin. And now I'm alive in Christ Jesus. And I've found joy like I've never had before. And this burden's been removed from me. I'm free from all sorts of the distresses of life. I found new joy in Jesus. What are you left to do? But tell others and speak to others of the things which you have seen and heard. That's what Peter and John had declared to them. Now I want to get to, to what I was wanting to get to. That was all just extra. Verse 23, it says, And being let go, they went to their own company. They went back to their own people. It says, As they went back to their own people, they went back to the church. They reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. Peter and John go back to the church and, and they tell everybody what had happened. 
It says, when they heard, it says, when they had heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. It says, for of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, thy holy servant Jesus, as we better translated, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak the word by stretching forth thy hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy servant Jesus. The people were made to hear all the things that the, the, the rulers had said to Peter and John and how they had been released. And how they had been released and charged to, to no longer preach underneath the name of Jesus or do all these things, all these signs underneath the name of Jesus and how they had told them that they cannot but speak the things which they have seen in her. They come back to the church and the church is made to glorify God. To lift up their voice with one accord, praising God for who He is and what He has done and what He will be doing through the church. This is the church faced with persecution for the first time. They had found themselves in prison for preaching and healing underneath the name of Jesus. They've come back and they've reported what has happened to them. And they could have said, well, listen, we can't, can't do these things anymore. We can't preach the name of Jesus anymore. We saw what can happen if we do. We're going to have to, to be quiet. We're going to have to be careful about this and just got to practice under, uh, under cover that, that no one would know what's happening here. We can't do these things anymore. But instead, what do they do? They lifted up their voice in one accord. And they praise God. What do they praise Him? They praise Him that He is the Creator of all things. And all is His that has been created. And they speak of David and what David had wrote. And then in verse 27 it says, For of a truth against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, said Herod to Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, that they were all gathered together to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. I preached this morning about how Jesus was crucified and how that pleased the Father, that, that by Him God's wrath was appeased, that we don't have to, to have God's wrath being held against our charge anymore because Jesus has taken that upon Himself and, and He propitiated the wrath of God for our sake, that we can be saved and have right fellowship with God. And when we think about those things, we think about what has been done and how we have this opportunity to serve after the Lord. I want you to know, I want you to realize that God was overseeing all that was done on the cross. And at any moment, Jesus could have called legions of angels to come and take Him off the cross. Jesus suffered and He died willingly. And it pleased the Father. And I want you to realize and to know that what took place on that day at Calvary, on that cruel cross, had been foreordained before the foundation of the world. The plan of salvation was already in motion when Adam was created of the dust of the earth. It was already underway. In the distance, 
God knew that His justness and His righteousness would intersect on a cross that would be stood up on a hill called Calvary outside of the city of Jerusalem. And that there His Son would bear the sins of all the earth. And that God's wrath would be heaped upon Him. And that His wrath would be satisfied. And on the third day, His Son would resurrect from the ground with great power. And being resurrected from God, we would have been brought to us a justification by which we have newness of life in Christ Jesus. God looked ahead. And He saw all these things. And the early church knew this. And they said that though Herod, when Jesus was first born, he sought to kill the baby Jesus. Pontius Pilate now had crucified Jesus at the will of the people of the will of the Gentiles and the people of Israel that were gathered together, but all that they were doing was doing what the hand of God had already determined before to be done. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that said that if they had known that they were crucifying the Son of God, if they had known what they were doing when they crucified Jesus that day, they would not have done it. And he says, And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. With all boldness, they may speak thy word. Now, Brother Chris charged us a little earlier. He talked to us about the opportunities that that he's praying for that are coming up before the church. We know, I I hope you've seen, at least in part, of of the opportunities that are opening up for us as a church. And I hope they excite you as much as they excite me. I I hope you're, you're anxious, and I hope you're wanting to do more. I hope you're anxious for the activities that, that Sister Annette and Sister Becky are planning for the church to come together more often. I hope you're excited that from time to time we can try to set aside certain Sundays to, to, to make a determined effort to invite people to church and, and those sorts of things. I hope you're excited about seeing lost souls seeking. I hope you're excited about wanting to see souls saved. I hope you're excited and wanting to see a great revival break out here amongst God's people. But listen to me, unless we find ourselves with boldness to be able to speak and to preach those things that God would have us to do, while we might have all of this excitement, all of these opportunities are going to go to waste. We must be bold to follow the Lord and to walk through the opportunities that are before us no matter what those opportunities might be, whether they be those things that would be expected or unexpected, whether they be those things that make us nervous, whether they be those things that make us anxious inside or worried inside or inconvenienced, that we would find ourselves with boldness to follow the Lord. This is instruction to the church. The example that we have here is from the early church. And I highlighted something earlier, and I hope you heard me when I highlighted it, of what they were doing. It said that all of them feared the Lord. They didn't say that there were just certain among them that had a greater fear, respect, or reverence for the Lord when the early church was breaking out and thousands of souls were getting saved. They didn't say that just some of them had dedicated themselves, not the, the those that, that were kind of the best among them had purposed in their hearts to serve the Lord. It said that the fear of the Lord came upon every soul. Say that. Say every soul. Every soul. Everyone in the early church 
found themselves together in one mind, in one accord, with great reverence for the Lord. And when they had heard even that persecution was taking place against them, they said, let us lift up our voice and praise the Lord. And they praised the Lord and besought the Lord that they might have boldness, that they might have boldness to speak His word. I want to tell you about a tale of two churches. A tale of two churches. I already gave this away a little bit to my earlier comments. There are sometimes at churches that they are maturing, we'll say. And as they find themselves maturing, they find a great effort that is renewed within, within them for the Lord. But as I was saying earlier, they start to see a little bit. And as they see a, a little bit, they find themselves contented by that. I mean, if I'm Peter and James and John, and all of a sudden we've been left with a week and we've been waiting for the Comforter to come, and the Comforter has come and He has filled the room, and, and as they've been filled with the Holy Ghost, they begin to preach, and 3,000 souls are saved. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've been like, all right, this stuff's working. God knew what He was doing. And they probably would have found when the first sign of problems came, when there was the first division within the church, divisions came to the early church, when they found that there was the first sign of persecution, they said, you know what, we've done pretty good, we're just going to kind of sit back and, and take it easy, appreciate the things that have been done, and be satisfied. They didn't do that, did they? They stood before the rulers at the first sign of persecution and with boldness, filled with the Holy Ghost, they said, we cannot help but speak the things which we had seen and heard. And then they went back to the church and they gave the report to the church and the church prayed and they asked God for more boldness that they might be able to speak Thy Word. You see that? Isn't that incredible? They didn't go back and say, God, please protect us. God, help us that our word might be more satisfying for people to hear it, that we won't get in trouble with the rulers or these types of things. They said, God, let us be more bold. Fill us with Thy Holy Spirit. These people feared the Lord. I've been a part of a few different churches at different stages of where they were at different points of time. In pastoring here over the last nine years, I've seen Faith Church at different points in her maturity. When I got to Faith Church that first winter, it seemed like most of the time we were just trying to survive. There were just a handful that were meeting. Man, they were sweet people. I miss so many of their memory. Brother Beatty... I'd give anything for just one more time to hear him smack that piano and say, now you got it! As we finally got on tune with him and as he was trying to lead us in song. I miss Sister Bernice in the business meeting, nodding her head, giving me reassurance as a young pastor that you're doing okay. I miss these people. I miss them very much. But as we made it out of that first winter and we got into our first revival, God began to Bless Faith Church. We begin to grow Faith Church. There's been a work that's being been being done here over the last eight years, and it's brought a lot of joy to my heart. It's brought a lot of 
uh, anxiousness at times. It's brought a lot of worry at times. It has caused me to reflect a bunch. It has caused me sometimes to question myself, to wonder how we're doing, what are we doing, where are we falling short, to, to pray and to question the Lord and to pray some more and ask God to, to help and to give clarity and give assurance. And, and we found ourselves that over this time that, that the church has, has almost just gone through these different periods of development. You've probably seen your children go through periods of development, haven't you? I was blessed this morning to watch Kinsley and Ellie as they came out of the back from, from singing and they were walking back to the Sunday school room holding hands. You know, it wasn't but a year ago. They could, could, could hardly even walk. And now here they are just marching through the aisle on their way back to Sunday school like they own the joint. Kids go through stages of maturity, don't they? And I've seen Faith Church mature. And I see her continuing to mature. I'm glad of that. The Bible says, let us go on unto perfection. It says to, to mature, that we're to go through those growth stages of the church, to, to leave the milk of the Word and to go on unto the meat that we would take and that we would tolerate strong doctrine as we would mature and as we would grow. And as we grow and as we mature, I think one of the hallmarks of a maturing church, one of the hallmarks of a church that has sold themselves out for the Lord, a church that is anxiously desiring revival, that has prepared themselves for revival, that has prepared themselves for the outpouring of the Spirit of the Lord, is that when we find ourselves in service like today, that what takes place is that the Spirit begins to move amongst His people in a great way, in a, in a clear way, and we begin to see God's people moving and serving the Lord. And He is about to see the Spirit as He's making His way through the house and His people who through the week have been praying, who through the week have been fearing God as we saw in the early church. They begin to have their, their hearts stirred within them. They begin to, to have those directions of the Lord as we talk about in our, in our services, that our services are led and they're directed by the Lord. They begin to be moved by Him. And all of a sudden, everything just starts to fall into place as God works in His people in His service. I bet you can think about those examples in your life, those old brothers and sisters, those old stalwarts in the church. And you've seen how they've worked in altar services. I've seen Sister Hazel. We all know how she is frail at her late age and she'll still get down on the floor with a sinner and help them pray. I've seen countless others who have demonstrated to me what it is to follow after the Lord in boldness during a service. How they are constrained by their fear of the Lord. And how it just seems like the service breaks out and you're almost left to, to stop and wonder, how, how did that even begin? It's just like the Spirit just swept through the church. I want to read two Scriptures. I'm going to try to close. This first is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. It says, Know ye not that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? I want you to know that if you've been saved by God's grace, the Spirit of God dwells in you. You are a living temple of God. God lives in you. That should change how you think about everything you do. 
You're a dwelling place for God. At prior times, God led His people through a pillar of fire. He's led His people through a pillar of a cloud. He has manifested Himself in bushes. He has moved in different directions. He has appeared unto Daniel, or excuse me, unto Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego there in the fiery furnace. We see time and time again how God had revealed Himself in the Old Testament. We know how during the life of Christ, that Jesus, that God dwelt among us. That He walked among us. And now Jesus has gone up and He's ascended to the right hand of the Father. And He said, it is to your advantage that I go away. He said, it's expedient that I would go away. He said, because if I go away, I will send a comforter for you. He said, if I go away, I will send my Spirit. I will send the Spirit of God. I will send the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, unto you. He ascended, and about a week later, Jesus made good on that promise when the Holy Spirit came and it filled that room where His disciples were gathered there in Jerusalem. And His Holy Spirit continues to dwell with His people today. That's how God has revealed Himself. That's how God reveals Himself today. That's how God lives with us today. He's no longer leading His people by a pillar of fire, a pillar of cloud. And certainly we know that He's not with us in the flesh today, but He lives within each one of us that have been saved in our hearts. He lives within you. Young people, that should change how you think about your body. That should change how you think about your life and what you want to do when you grow up. I'm going to say something. I'm going to go here. You're all going to throw something at me. That's okay. I see a growing trend. I can't believe I'm going here. I see a growing trend among young people to get tattoos. And I want you to know that biblically, I don't see anything where I can tell you what you're doing is unbiblical. But what I do want you to do is be very, very cautious about how you treat the dwelling place of God. You've heard me get up here sometimes, young people, and I talk about how you dress, and you say, I sure wish you'd stop talking about how I dress. Do you know why I'm worried about how you dress? Because how you dress reflects how you're treating the dwelling place of God. And I believe that the dwelling place of God should be treated and reserved with some respect. Because God lives here. <laughs> Isn't that cool? God lives here. He's God. He could have chosen anywhere else on earth. He could have chosen anywhere else underneath His jurisdiction. I want you to know His jurisdiction covers everywhere. The far sides of the universe that we haven't yet discovered, God sees it. And He could have chosen anywhere for His Spirit to dwell. But He has chosen to dwell in your hearts. That should change how we think and how we operate in this life. We should be careful about how we treat this body of ours. We are the dwelling place of the Lord. Now listen to this though. It gets better. Listen to what Paul told the church in the book of Ephesians. There's a lot here that we go through, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to read one verse. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22. It says, In whom you also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. This is Paul. And now he's not just writing to individuals, but he's writing to the church collectively. Brother Brad preached from this text a few years ago at our revival. It was a good message. I remember it well. But what we see 
is that when we individually, who are the dwelling place of God, come together as a church, that we begin to find ourselves fitly joined together, is what the Bible says here in the book of Ephesians, that we find ourselves joined together and framed together as a house that would be built by God. And that house that would be built by God then, when God's people come together, we find ourselves collectively to be the dwelling place, the habitation of God. When we gather ourselves together like this, it is as though God says, my house is ready. Let me enter into it. We've been watching them build a couple of houses up near our house, there in front of the soccer fields in Whiteland. As we've been watching them build those houses over the last several months, you see how they lay the foundation. They lay the foundation, they come, they begin to, to put down the put up the walls, and after they get the walls framed all out and together, they begin to put the trusses on the roof, and they get the roof all trussed out, and begin to, to wrap the outside and, and complete the outside and complete the roof, and they come in and they put up the drywall and they, they make all the rooms, and they build out the plumbing and they build out the electrical and all those things that go into building a house. And we've watched them do this. And as we've watched them do this, we've watched with, with anxiousness over what it's going to look like at its finished product. And then we watched the finished product be there. And then we watched anxiously. We said, when is somebody going to get to move in there? This afternoon, when we came home, made our way home from church, we drove by that house and there was a U-Haul truck. And they were moving in to take possession of their habitation. A lot of work went into the preparation of that house for somebody to make it its habitation. A lot of work has went into Faith Church. God has individually worked in all of your lives. I want you to think about all that transpired to bring you to the day that you got saved. The people that were an influence on your life, the people that continue to be an influence on your life, those brothers, those sisters, those mentors, those loved ones that you have, those family members that you have that have influenced your life, all that is all that effort that has been made to, to prepare you. And then God collectively pulls us together. He's laid the foundation in His Son, Jesus Christ. He has framed us together. He has fit us together as His church. And then He comes and He dwells among us. He says, I'm home. He says, this is my home. This is my people. And though the storm outside may rage, and though the wind might beat against this house, this house will continue to stand because the one who dwells there is the one who has built it. And the one who has built it has seen fit that it has been built to withstand all the storms and all the troubles of life. And he has saw it to be acceptable and good for him to dwell here. So I want to challenge us. If we desire, not not desire, if we are the dwelling place of God, if when we assemble ourselves together, God looks down and He sees that His dwelling place has assembled themselves together. And if He dwells within each one of us individually, He's been with us all throughout the week, and we found ourselves to be spending time with Him and drawing close to Him and studying His Word and seeking after Him. And we come in on a Sunday morning, we assemble ourselves together. It's as though God all of a sudden says, My house is ready. And He comes and He dwells with His people. Are you ready to, as Brother Adamson put it a couple of weeks ago at the association, are you ready to spend and be spent 
to the Lord. Are you ready for the Lord to, to come and, and dwell in His house and use what is His? Listen, if you've been saved by God's grace, you've been bought with a price. He's paid for you. You are His. Are you ready to be used of the Lord? You might say, yeah, Derek, I'm ready. You might be ready mentally and you say, yes, I, I'm ready to, as my brother-in-law Aaron would say, you're ready to take on hell with a water gun. You might be ready from the sense of, of an excitement, of a zeal for the work of the Lord. That's not what I mean when I say, are you ready? I say, are you ready? That you have sought the Lord in prayer. You have a clear conscience before God. You've repented of over or whatever those things are that might interfere with your walk with the Lord that stand between you and a, and a right relationship with God. You find yourself drawing and, and desiring to be drawn closer and closer to the Lord. I, I need to close. But listen, have you ever been in a service where, where somebody has come in and you can just tell they've been with the Lord for a while? Or they walk in and they're just, they're just hooked up. I bet you guys can think of some of the same names I can think of. Brother Nathan York. People tell stories about him getting out of the car, preaching. He's just so fired up. He's ready to go when he gets out of the car, preaching. I've seen him stand up from prayer and just start preaching. He's been spending some time with the Lord. He's fit for habitation. He's ready. Are you spiritually ready to be used of the Lord? I hope your answer is the same answer that the church had when Peter and John returned from being imprisoned, having heard all that the rulers had said and being threatened to not say anything else about Jesus. And they lifted up their voice and they praised the Lord and they said, God, make us bold to speak Thy Word. I hope all of our response as we ask ourselves if we're ready to spend and be spent for the Lord, if we're ready to be a dwelling place for the Lord, if we're ready to serve the Lord, I hope your response is, Lord, let us be bold in your service. Thank you for listening to me tonight. I pray that God will bless His message. I'm excited for the Lord, for the work of the Lord. and I, I want to be careful. I'll just say this, that of all these things that I've said, that they must be withstood and understood in wisdom. We must be careful how we follow after the Lord according to His will. But sometimes I think we miss some opportunities because we've found ourselves to be so messed up with everything else that we don't find ourselves ready to be used of the Lord. Jesus taught a parable one time about the ten virgins. And He talked about how they were waiting for the husbandmen to come. They were, they were waiting for the bridegroom to come, rather. And how some weren't ready. They didn't have oil in their lamps. Listen, I want to be ready to be used of the Lord. Don't you? Avail yourself. Prepare the habitation of the Lord. God dwells in you. When we come together, He chooses to dwell with us. I hope that we're ready to be His habitation. Someone on your heart. Someone God wants you to say or do.